0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Brain Health Podcast. Let's start with the brain snack from the interview of today.
1: We estimate that 38% of uh, the population globally is living with a brain condition, and if we um, impact that to Europe, that means 180 million. The brain is central to every function of our human beings functions like walking, uh, sleeping, Mm -hmm. having sex. Uh, we have now uh, created, uh, since uh, five, five to ten years, um, what we call national brain councils, so which are really the mirror image of EBC, but with um, national societies, ma- national patient groups, national actors, um, to echo the message that we, um, that we have developed at Brussels level, the studies, uh, the various evidence, the stats. Uh, that we produce, that they can also use it and try to convince their decision makers to improve the situation at, uh, at a local level.
0: Hi everybody, Here it's Alessia from the Brain Health Podcast. We are today with uh, Kim at the Barton Masteller offices. And Barton Masteller is a political public affairs consultancy right next to the European Parliament in Bruxelles and uh, they work for uh, contributing to the political debate. For uh, the audience that do not know me and uh, Kim, I am a life science IT consultant. I work with uh, R&D and and IT systems used for clinical studies, for healthcare and uh, life science companies. And uh, here there is Kim with me.
2: Hello everybody, this is Kim Yeah, and uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Brain Plus that does digital therapeutics for neurorehabilitation, basically the recovery of damaged and injured brains, uh, cognitive functions. So that's what I do and we have a very special guest today, which is Fred. Hi, Fred. Hi, Kim. Hi, Alicia. Fred, uh, we're very pleased to have Fred on the podcast because fred is the executive director of the european brain council fred is very knowledgeable into brain disorders on uh, on a very large on a you can say on a societal level he knows what's going on with that he knows what the cost of brain disorders are to society so those are some of the questions i'm hoping that we'll get into but uh i'll actually let fred introduce himself and uh hi fred so please introduce yourself and Please tell us what what you're actually doing at the European Brain Council and what your mission is. Hi
1: everyone, so my name is Fred. I'm the executive director of the European Brain Council, which is uh, a platform or federation bringing together uh, patient associations, uh, professional and scientific societies, as well as industry partners. The primary mission of uh, EBC is to advocate for brain research at European level. And in doing so, we have developed uh, an agenda quite ex- extensive to demonstrate the benefits of those investments into research and also how uh, we need to transform healthcare pathways uh, in order to provide the best care for those living with a brain condition.
2: That's that's very interesting. And, and maybe we could start off with a really important question, which is what, what are all these brain disorders really costing us as a society?
1: Well, we estimate, so those disorders, first of all, uh, encompass diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis for, um, the most known out of them. But we also have rarer uh, neurological conditions like uh, restless leg syndrome or, or others like ataxia, dystonia, which are really less, new, less known, uh, but still very disabling. And we need to add to that all the gamut of mental disorders such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, but also depression, um, which is really highly prevalent and, and is now becoming, according to the WHO, the number one burden uh to society. So we estimate that thirty eight percent of uh the population globally is living with a brain condition. And if we um impact that to Europe, that means one hundred and eighty million. Uh, citizens are wow. having to to deal uh, with a brain condition uh, in the course of uh, of his life. So if we make the math, that also means that technically every family will be touched by that condition. So that's a huge, I would say, human and um, and personal burden for those being affected um, either by a relative or personally with this condition. And also in terms of importance, if we translate it into economic value, um, we estimated in a study released in 2011 that, um, we, I mean, the cost and burden of treating brain conditions every year amounted to nearly 800 billion euros. Mm-hmm. But also what we demonstrated, um, is that in spite of the fact that this is a huge economic cost, it is still uh, providing return on its investments. Because it would be worse actually not to invest into the treatment of those conditions, because the cost to society of not treating would be even, even worse. Mm. So just like stopping programs, uh, you know, if governments now would like to make cuts, uh, as we know often here, we just demonstrated that continuing to pay off for the, for these treatment. Um, would actually make, make sense in the long run, economically, rather than to stop those programs and stop uh, investing that money.
0: According to your study, what is affecting the high cost and burden on society of brain disorders? And is there any chance for lowering this cost? What about healthcare providers? How is it working?
1: Well, what we demonstrated in a, in a recent study released last year um, was that, I mean, first of all, our, um, healthcare systems are, I would say, deserve some improvements. So there is room for improvement in the way care is being organized in our, um, in Europe currently, mm-hmm. in the sense that we are rather reactive than proactive. We do not invest enough in prevention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of this leads to a situation where we have a treatment gap. So that means that we, we live in a, in a, in a society, um, where not all patients have the right access to care when they need it. And also, uh, we live in a society where, um, we still have lots to make in order to cure most of the brain disorders. I often say that these are conditions, unfortunately, that we cannot cure, but which are very rarely deadly. And we need to be accustomed to live with it, uh, as soon as we, um as we are diagnosed and we will live till the end with that condition rather than die from that condition uh, directly i mean apart from very severe cases of course so the idea here is is really to emphasize the fact that um there is a lack of access um we estimated that out of 10 persons living with a brain condition from 3 to 8 did not have the access to care that they needed, mm. whilst very often that care existed. And uh, we also tried to capture the economic loss of the clinical intervention that actually was lacking. Mm-hmm. So um, for instance, um, community care in schizophrenia or early intervention in uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, the development of a cure in Alzheimer's. So these were all case studies that we analyzed uh in that report really to um to emphasize the fact that the earlier we were intervening and investing into prevention earlier diagnosis uh an early intervention was really making sense economically and that we could really uh leverage cost efficient uh interventions in almost all brain disorders
2: okay interesting and could you perhaps just give one very concrete example of what such an early intervention could be in one of the areas.
1: Well, I think the the most striking one is probably the case of uh, MS, so multiple sclerosis, um, where they had like a long standing, um, let's say, plea in order to to really advocate for slowing down the course of the disease. So the earlier you intervene, the more likely you are to to be able to slow down that progression of disease. Because if you simply let it go. In the very first phases, it can, I mean, the situation can, uh, worsen very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, and you reach stages that you cannot recuperate. I mean, you cannot, you cannot go backwards in mm-hmm. the, in the states of, of this condition. So the earlier you actually identify, you diagnose and you intervene, the more likely you are to be able to slow down that, pro- that progression and to keep, uh, to keep the patient in a state of... Still functionality um, personally, but also I would say uh, being able to, to return to work or to continue working, for instance, mm. um, continue to be integrated socially. Also, um, well, the capacity to function with relatives, with family yeah. um, are, are issues which are extremely important because that's also what we identified in the in the study, which we call the value of treatment and that notion of value was pretty much around what the patient needs, um, where, or at least what we identified as being really critical to patients in terms of what they actually look forward, um, in, in the perspective of being treated or looked after. Hmm. Um, so a lot has to do with the
2: quality of life. So if I have to kind of see if I understood what you said correctly then for a lot of these diseases, the earlier we can intervene and the better we can intervene, we will both be able to often slow down the, the decline in brain function, for example, and that thus uphold a better functioning in life that will save costs of care because these people will be able to be function more independently. It will free up their family resources because their family will have less emotional strain and need to help them less. And they'll actually be able to contribute longer to society themselves in terms of work, et cetera, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, that, so that's... Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It's an excellent summary. But in addition to that, um, I mean, I have another case study, for for instance, which was the case of headache and migraine, um, where there the, the focus was really... I mean, what we identified there was, okay, early intervention was key. But in order to achieve that, we needed to revisit the way uh, healthcare services were organized in order to be able to diagnose or access patients um, more easily, because the prevalence of headache is really enormous. So you cannot rely on specialized, um, let's say, on um, secondary or tertiary care to, to look after uh, people living with migraine. So that's where we, we really needed to emphasize the role of the um of the primary care also uh, revisiting the role of, of pharmacists so it's not only GPs um to be really closer closer to to the population as, as possible mm. but that's also where in let's say advocating for revisiting the way healthcare services are organized we really highlighted the fact that we needed to also revisit our, our perception of, of those services, but also um, the technologies that we use. And okay. um, and we really made a strong plea in our conclusions of, the, of that report that we needed digital solutions in order to transform um, the care pathways and the care services available to patients.
0: So prevention, meaning as early diagnosis and early therapy, is actually one of the keys to not only ensure a better life for patients but also ensure cost savings for the healthcare systems and less burden to society
1: so prevention is uh, as we heard yesterday at the make a stone event, uh, information and education so okay. it's it's also for me prevention also falls into um, well what falls into the definition is awareness of the disease awareness of the burden awareness of what one disorder actually implies. Um, we have another campaign, um, currently on, um, support to companies, um, in the context of workplace mental health. And, um, and just, I mean, it's another example, but part of that campaign is really to foster the awareness of what it means to live with stress, what it, what it means to, um, have to take a mental health break. In the context of your, um, uh, of your work, just because, you know, you just had enough or you no longer can cope or whatever reason. It can also be based on family issues that very often you don't know of because that's, these are things you don't discuss with colleagues. Mm-hmm. But you as a colleague, you have uh, a crucial role in order to, to support that person. For instance, when he or she comes back to work. So there are no worse thing of like not paying attention to someone who has been on a long sick leave. And actually, you know, that's for mental health reasons. And the stigma associated to it is just enormous. But if we can just kill it by a better information yeah. and also, um, having the right, I would say the right behaviors or the right, the right reaction in front of, of someone having to cope, because we all have days where, you know, uh, we are under the weather. Um, and you actually, you can't even identify the reason for that. So mood, mood is, you know, very flexible and, uh, and can vary from one day to the other or from one moment to the other. Uh, sometimes with no, I would say, reasoned explanations.
0: It's very interesting what you're saying. We should remember that usually awareness of a problem or a disease would bring uh, more acceptance from a context towards the disease and but for people that might have the doubt of being affected to so speak about it or being checked exactly. for that, right? And
2: exactly. I can certainly relate to that as being a former <coughs> uh, or current as well uh, CEO and employer and I remember three years ago when I was vice president of Vestas and I had an employee who actually burned out mm-hmm. and for me as a employer, I was really lacking the lens to recognize those, like the signals mm-hmm. that he was very clearly sending now in retrospect that I know more about stress. But if I had known those signals, I would clearly be able to see that this guy is on the virtual breakdown, Yeah, which, Absolutely. which, which actually happened. So the, the whole education of even recognizing stress, acknowledging it, both also as employers, but mm-hmm. just in general in society, I can, I can definitely recognize that.
0: Fred, in our current times, how do you see the role of technology and of the industry in supporting researchers to find strategies for prevention and then for treatment?
1: Um, Actually, we come back to that paradigm that new technologies are bringing huge advantages and and huge potential, but they at the same time point us again to the, let's say, the, the needs to identify very clearly what are the the risk factors, how they impact uh, brain functioning, which is still very much unknown. So that means that, okay, we are probably at one edge of of that spectrum that we represent at ABC. So that means from the basic neuroscience to uh, the applied and clinical, and then then I would say to the patient bedside, but also in the the patient daily life. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sure that um Those technologies are just well supported by the knowledge which is produced at the at the other edge of 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 that spectrum uh for us, what is critical in that context is that we really take the patients uh at the at the center
3: mm-hmm.
1: um because one element um that ought to be to be added is that in most of the brain disorders we lack in our know, understanding of the brain functioning and everything we lack a clear identification of biomarkers. Um we lack very often uh, the identification of of very clear clinical endpoints, et etc et etc, to demonstrate um the added value of the new therapies of the new drugs of the new treatments that we that we develop and we very much hope that AI and other digital technologies would contribute in order to um, to overcome those challenges which are for us, the biggest barrier at the moment in order to continue to foster innovation in our sector, which is really critical. Could
0: you be able, for the audience that doesn't know, to mention what actually are biomarkers that are so needed to then go?
1: Well, in the limit of my non-clinical expertise, um, basically a biomarker is, uh, for instance, if you take uh, comparison in in, uh, in cardiology, it's just to say, okay, that we—if you make a test, a biological test, so blood sample or any other kind of, 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 of test that you can measure, so that you identify one marker in your body or one marker in your blood or whatever, which um, you can measure variations of, and so you have a very concrete and very objective uh, measurement of the impact that a therapy or uh, that a treatment can can bring. And in the brain, um, this is at the moment very rarely possible. Mm. So we we know very few of those biomarkers that are uh, actually impactful in order to to demonstrate that uh, such value.
2: Maybe I can double back to the to the technology part because I think there are so many really interesting applications for technology, and you mentioned some of them, right? One thing is that we're getting technology is, is gathering data on us all the time, and that allows both to maybe recognize early symptoms or recognizing our health status, basically based on what the technology is picking up. So I think that's really interesting. And I know that there are concrete companies working on stuff like early detection of disease. That's one area, right? Just based on how how we interact with our smartphone. And then there's actual screening and diagnostics. I know that AI is doing huge leaps forward in terms of our ability to very quickly use AI technology Mm -hmm to recognize very precisely, do diagnostics, for example, then cancer screening and things like that. And then there's technology for for therapeutics as well. So basically using new technologies to make therapeutics more effective uh, and efficient for that matter. So could you could you talk a little bit more about that whole spectrum of how we can more efficiently use technology in relation to brain disorders?
1: But, but in terms of the, of the very concrete applications, I think we, we already mentioned like disease management, uh, monitoring, um, detecting early signs, um, which, which for us are just like an amazing transformation or an amazing perspective of saying, okay, we, we can get there where we can intercept the disease, which is now the new, uh, the new paradigm, um, in, in clinical research. Uh, again, on the basis of of this idea of intervening early. Um, but there are also uh, other signs which, for me, are, are important, particularly for the scientists and the clinicians uh, being represented on the, on the ages. Um, for instance, in the support to diagnosis, in the support uh, to interpret brain scans, mm-hmm. um, also in the perspective of uh, improving the techniques that will generate those brain scans where we can maybe think of, uh, of new devices, which could be less invasive or less invasive or with radiation that, that could be uh, less damaging to particularly as the brain is so fragile. Mm-hmm. So, so all of this for us is, um, is clearly fascinating. And, um, I mean, that's also the reason why we have entered partnerships like, uh, TDP, the digital Therapeutic partnerships and, uh, and set up like uh, alliances with with various groups, brain mm-hmm. plus, uh, and others. Uh,
0: if we think about what we've been discussing so far, I'm really glad that you kind of covered us the need for awareness uh, and technology. Um, then I would like to kind of move towards uh, the future, maybe. So, uh, looking into what you and um, and the brain council have been able to achieve so far, mm-hmm. or what do you see that actually are the achievements in mm-hmm. this context because something has been done right and how do you what do you see in the short future
1: yeah where, what's the way
2: and, and priorities right what are the priorities
1: yeah well actually it's it's uh it's a very relevant question because it refers to also to a dna of thinking constantly as to what is necessary to to do i mean when ebc was started it was kind, kind of easy because Brain research was completely undefended um, in comparison to other disease areas like uh, uh, cardiovascular, diabetes, cancer, uh, which were well-funded for very good reasons. Um, that's, uh, we don't want to dispute that, but it's just um, on the basis of the of the burden, the economic cost that I mentioned earlier. We just made the case of saying, okay, guys, we need to invest a little bit more because those diseases are highly prevalent, highly costly. And as I mentioned, we know very little uh, of them. And in a little bit more than 15 years of existence, we managed to, I think, multiply the budgets um, dedicated by the European Commission on brain research by a factor of 30, uh, more or less, um, which is for us a, a very, very big achievement. Of course, we cannot claim that it is only associated to EBC action only, but it's just um, to mention the fact that we also managed to federate and mobilize a huge community. As I mentioned, the network of our patient groups, of our scientific societies, also our industry partners, uh, really helped to advocate, I would say, in the same way. And now we face that a similar challenge, that we need to go into the same direction in order to federate those uh, resources, because what we now see is a huge fragmentation um, of those initiatives, um, also duplication of research efforts. Mm. And now the big challenge is to make sure that we become more efficient in trying to streamline all of these efforts to, together at a European level with the support of the member states. But now the challenge would also uh, be to, to start launching global collaborations. So we are now in touch with the US. Um, I mean, we're looking towards Asia uh, quite interestingly because China and India are really popping up as being like big actors in, in brain research. Um, Japan, of course, uh, doesn't need to, to, to be mentioned, but also collaborations with countries like South Africa, Brazil. Um, these are all like issues we, um, or, or potential that we are, that we are looking into at the moment. And, uh, and still also with the perspective that, Okay. Even the, even if research is producing outcomes, um, that we have like every now and then, like discoveries, et cetera, is how do we translate this knowledge into very concrete benefits and very concrete, uh, applications to, to the benefit of patients?
2: Yeah. Interesting.
0: I'm actually wondering, uh, how would you benefit from, uh, global partnerships and how, how, how complex is that?
1: Well, complex, for sure it is. Um, but the potential is, is, um, in a way to try and recognize the, I would say, how we could be best or, or most efficient in, in trying to tackle a disease like Alzheimer's, for instance. So, I mean, it's, it is now so recognized as being so complex. The rate of failure is just enormous. We are reaching 99%. Uh, it's a polite way to say that we have failed completely uh, on trying to develop no uh, innovative therapies in the context of, of that disorder. So that means that the country on its own cannot tackle it. I think that uh, at the European level, it's complex enough to say that we probably need to go uh, one layer up and say this should be a global challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the context of, of the G7, that's uh, we know that this is uh, going to be to be discussed. Very interestingly, the Canadian presidency is now bringing up uh, mental health as being one of the priorities. So these are, let's say, evolutions that, that are now starting. And, um, and with colleagues in the, in other funding initiatives, like the joint programming on neurodegenerative diseases, the human brain project, um, the innovative medicines initiatives. These are all, let's say, actions that have now started, um, and which we hope to be able to federate uh, in order to to achieve that harmonization and let's say um, uh, alignment, um, so that the priorities of of everyone just become complementary and not competing, uh, and also offer economies of scale in a way, in the sense that they
2: would then be aligned. So uh, collaboration on a global scale—that's one of the pathways forward. Another thing that you mentioned that I would like to maybe touch a bit more on, is the therapy versus prevention. Uh-huh. And uh, because you said in Alzheimer's, for example, 99% of all therapeutic efforts or research mm-hmm. fails to show any efficacy, right? Yeah. So, so why do we keep researching in treatments instead of prevention? And why is it that the care pathways are focusing primarily or if not to say solely on treatment rather than prevention? What, could, you, could you reflect on that a little bit?
1: We should definitely not overlook awareness and, um, and, uh, management of, of risk factors and everything or detection of, of early signs. Um, this is absolutely clear. But at the same time, you cannot think that prevention will solve it all. So that means that the two are, are equally important. Mm-hmm. Um, now I wish that we could live in a world where prevention would be as funded than, uh, than clinical research. Uh, I think we are now getting there in terms of the political awareness on, on the importance of, of, of these kind of issues. Now it's still, it's still a long way to identify what very clearly, um, what sort of prevention actually works. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I'd like to come back on what I said about the understanding of, of risk factors and how from a public health perspective, we would then be able to identify what sort of strategies should be put in place um, in order to again produce, um, the desired, um, outcomes, but in a cost efficient manner.
2: You talked about very early in an in interview, a change. We need to change perception of the healthcare system. What did you mean by that?
1: Um, well, it's, it's easy, easy and, uh, and difficult at the same time. Um, when I took the example of migraine, um, I think it's, it was an easy way if I can, if I can talk like that to, to simply emphasize the fact that we need an increased role of, of primary care, primary care, for instance. Um, if, if we take other, other disorders like, uh, schizophrenia or I don't know, uh, uh, Parkinson and o- of a mess. It's more of a, of a cultural shift and a paradigm shift that we, that we would need in certain countries. Again, we, we got there for historical or cultural reasons. Uh, but in others, we are still lagging behind. And that's where we need to think a bit more along the lines of how we could integrate better our healthcare system. So that means that we should no longer see hospitals as, as being like the only uh, vector or the only facilitator or organizer of healthcare services, but that this setting should be integrated into the community, and that we have a, a very uh, well, let's say, an optimized navigation of the patient mm-hmm. within that community. That all actors within that community would be um, then interlinked, be able to access the uh, the clinical records, uh, make sure that the supervision of a patient, like Prevention and supervision of of that patient and then in his management would be then better uh better coordinated so that's that's really the the huge shift into into which we need to to enter, not to mention also um the big revolution of personalized medicine mm-hmm. um which are all let's say developments that accompany um or let's say support what we identified as being necessary in terms of of um adapting the care systems Mm -hmm. um along the lines of a better integration
2: okay so it's basically taking what today may be silo based uh treatment uh, episodes on along the if i'm a if i'm a a citizen or a patient yeah i go to the Mm -hmm. hospital i'm there for a couple of days get treatment and then i'm a little bit on my own uh then i get thrown to the next clinic maybe that is a little bit less acute or i don't get anything at all and uh and there it starts all over again so there's there's a lack of connection or coherence between that
1: yeah or, or you're sent back home with uh, with no post-op monitoring of of let's say what you did in the hospital mm-hmm. so here the idea would be i mean i like your, the image of the silo which which gives the impression of healthcare systems being organized vertically what's here, what we would like to, to achieve is a kind of more horizontal management of, of the patient. Mm-hmm. So you said indeed that you could go to an hospital not knowing what sort of uh, standards of care or what sort of, of, uh, specialists they have internally, uh, and be sent off to another one, let's say a less acute knowledge of the condition you have, et cetera. But that if we take it from the origin that you are diagnosed with uh, disease X, having a better integrated system would help you or facilitate your navigation in order to access the best care or the care you need
2: at the, at the appropriate time hmm. and, and avoid having it to, to, to take it in, into steps. That makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, I'm guessing that's where technology can help facilitate some of that as well, right? To create Absolutely. transparency, like personalized health records that, that you can track all the way through the system and, and these types of things. Definitely.
1: And also on on a, on a personal level, I mean, in before joining EBC, I mean, I've been involved in those, in those discussions on, uh, on e-health and uh, electronic health records and all of that. So it's now um, something like 15 years that I'm, that I'm busy hearing all of this. And I know that these discussions pre, preempt even my, uh, my entry into, into the field. So being at, or entering an era where we see the development and deployment of these technologies. Is uh, is extremely fascinating, uh, particularly as they were like evoked for for something like twenty or thirty years. Mm. Uh,
0: you said that an important achievement was that the met- the investments in uh, brain health have been in the last fifteen years like uh, multiplied of a factor of thirty, right? And I was thinking, how how does it work um, at the at the European level with the distribution of the budget, mm-hmm. so very pl- practical. But sometimes, you know, we as uh, we often criti- uh, criticize politics and regulations because we actually don't understand how it really works. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, okay, how does when a budget is allocated? How how is that distributed across Europe, or how? Or who are the players in this uh, context?
1: Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Uh, well, first of all, I must say that the the um repartition of the of the budget allocated to research okay responds to um internal policies from from DG Research. Uh also according to a certain number of priorities that they that they have now defined internally, but also according to uh, uh societal challenges or um, our crisis or outbreaks that, that can, that can occur, like, uh, the Ebola, uh, Ebola crisis that we, uh, that we faced a couple of years ago. So I would say that this repartition of budgets now responds to, to this kind of, of needs to be, to be addressed. So we were lucky, um, in the, in the brain space to, to benefit from, uh, um, according to, to the latest figures from DG research, uh, something like a bit more than 5 billion euros over the last 10 years okay um and dg
2: research is what for the, the oh health? yeah i'm
1: sorry uh, dg research uh is the director general responsible for research and innovation within the european commission mm-hmm. so and it's okay. one one of the uh, one of the departments and uh, one of those we we work very closely with next to uh, the director general for health and then uh, the one on information society And, uh, and another one on employment. So these are, let's say the, the actors at the European Commission levels, uh, we talk to, but, but I would say in their, in their way of working, well, first of all, it's, it's, um, it's fully transparent. They allocate the budgets in terms of the, uh, of the calls. They had the due process in order to, uh, receive applications to evaluate them and then to, uh, uh, to allocate, allocate the budget on that No what what we as a as a community of researchers um would like to take issue with is is now the, the purely project based um repartition of, of that budget. So that means that there is no clear vision um as to okay what are the strands that we would like to facilitate, um how that money is then allocated for researchers to do to actually do research rather than to Invest their time into bureaucracy, particularly as we know that the, the rate of failure uh, is quite important, so that means that um, researchers now have to spend quite a lot of time and invest quite a lot of money into the development of those um, of those calls and applications with um, no real certainty that this is going to pay off uh, at some point so so this is where we need also to to um, uh, to manage very clearly how we want to achieve excellence, but how also those excellent researchers can optimize their time, uh, to do good research and also, um, niche research can also be facilitated. That's very, very often what is required is to have like huge consortia, um, with again, a bit of fragmentation and no real coordination between the various sectors. That's a way to distribute. Money across across countries and across very eminent institutions, but here again, um, this is to the detriment sometimes of uh, of a good and efficient uh, coordination amongst those those actors, and the deliverable of work is then uh, segmented, which uh, which sometimes is not really desirable.
0: So, what you are saying, if I understand, is that sometimes the challenge in in an efficient use of investment is fragmentation and project based assignment of the, of the budget budget at uh, a European level. We're talking about. Uh, so maybe of course, uh, different countries might have challenges in, in aligning and progressing in, uh, in research and stuff, so exactly. right.
1: Exactly. And, and just, uh, one element, um, which we just amused us, you know, in our advocacy recently, and, uh, also in the context of, of the release of our report on the, on the value of treatment, we just mm-hmm. made the maths, um, say okay if the commission has invested five billion euros over the last uh, uh over the last ten years on on brain disorders if we make the maths also in terms of the number of people living with a brain condition we calculated that it was just paying off one espresso per year per people living with a brain condition so what <laughs> we what we would like now to advocate for is to make oh. it a double espresso. <laughs> <laughs> an yeah,
0: and I really appreciate this one. <laughs> but, um, but actually, just talking about brain research, I'm thinking like uh, in terms of prior- priority within brain research. So, are you advoc- advocating for? You-, you mentioned digital biomarkers. Do you, are there any other priorities when it comes to brain research that you're trying to uh, advocating for at the moment?
1: Um, well. Here, here we tend to say that we we need to prioritize brain research as a
3: whole,
1: mm. um, but and that's and that's why I mean that definition, which is sometimes misunderstood uh, or, or or difficult to communicate, it's extremely important to keep it as as such because actually, given the fact that the let's say the scope of the unknown is so uh, is so enormous. We cannot predict actually what research is going to lead to. Mm. So if you, mm. if you do um, research in basic neuroscience, you cannot write a call of saying, I am going to find out this and this and that at the end of my, uh, of my mm. study here simply because I mean, the level of understanding is such that we can find, uh, things which are just bewildering, but also which can have Applications um, both in psychiatry, in neurology, in neurosurgery, so it ca- it can really be um, multifaceted or have appliances in in many different fields. So that's why we need to keep the brain as as united, or, or as let's say one one component, or neuroscience as being one one component. Um, and also, what is very interesting is that one discovery that you do in basic research. Can have applications which are completely, um, let's say un- unthinkable at the moment you, you find it. Mm. Um, and it ha- also happens in, um, uh, in other fields in is how other discoveries ha- have now been applied into neuroscience to provide benefits.
0: Are you thinking so, about something in particular?
1: Well, there is, uh, optogenetics, for instance, is how we looked at the, uh, the eye nerves, uh, system and the, uh, imaging techniques that, um, that we, that we found, which was using a certain, uh, let's say variation of light and intensity of light. We actually found out that it was affecting and imprinting and affecting, um, the, um, the brain plasticity. And this is now a technique that we can use in, uh, in,
2: in certain, let's say,
1: uh, high, high level and high tech therapies. Mm.
2: Okay. Super interesting. Yeah. So. Again, I'll try to maybe paraphrase or summarize some of the stuff you said in terms of research needs and allocation of research funds. So one advice to the policymakers who are, who are dividing that budget around is to just acknowledge that, first of all, yeah, big consortiums can be great if they're needed for a project. But certainly, being having a lot of partners in a project is not always a good thing, right because you it comes at the cost of there's a big growing coordination cost, and sometimes you basically just need a few players to really do in-depth research with a highly focused team so, right So basically saying that we should not only fund projects that are consortium based but maybe focused more like uh, smaller smaller projects with very specific aims. So that's one aspect of it, how many players are involved in the projects that are being funded. And the other one is this balance between basic research and applied research, uh, like the whole spectrum, and acknowledging that when it's basic research, we cannot really set the same requirements for for what is coming out of that research, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be really open to say that we don't know what's going to come out of it, what's going to come out of it is knowledge, right? That's that's basically the only requirement for the basic research.
0: And uh, uh, just one comment from also what I understand that uh, the role of the European Brain Council is uh, you actually try to make uh, policymakers and the European Commission aware of what are the challenges and burden for society, uh, the costs for Europe of uh, uh, brain disorders, and then also try to make them aware with uh, with researchers and so on of what can be the solutions to that. So it's uh, it's really a role of uh, helping policymakers to to be more aware.
1: It absolutely, I yeah, understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I would say it's um, I mean, no work has now started a couple of years ago, as I mentioned in in Brussels with European level policymakers, European Commission, European Parliament, etc. But now what we find out is that having those messages. Messages replicated at country level is now becoming more and more increasingly important. Mm. I mean, also with the, let's say, recomposition of how uh, the institutional decision making at European level is being, is being led, the role of the member states is becoming increasingly, uh, increasing, incre- increasingly important. Um, but also to echo what, what we do in the context of, uh, uh, European presidencies, but also for uh, certain in- issues linked to the decision making of the of the EU, but also to address what's going on at uh, at a local level. Uh, we have now uh, created, uh, since uh, five five to ten years, um, what we call national brain councils, so which are really the mirror image of EBC, but with uh, national societies, national patient groups, national actors um, to echo the message that we. Um, that we have developed at Brussels level, the studies, uh, the various evidence, the stats uh, that we produce, that they can also use it and try to convince their decision makers to improve the situation at uh, at a local level. Mm-hmm. And also, it's a way for us to collect feedback from what's going on, I would say, on the field at country level, mm-hmm. um, to also make sure that the message that we that we convey in Brussels, which sometimes can seem high level or superficial or very like uh, standards because it needs to be extrapolated from the let's say feedback from various countries or um, various stakeholders uh sometimes it seems a little bit abstract or disconnected to to reality and working with national actors national uh, brain councils or national patient groups really imprints it into uh into um a very concrete reality and and this is the best way for us to make sure that what we that we do or the message that we convey uh, remains relevant. Mm-hmm.
2: One question is: uh, we've been talking a lot about the public policy, the public sector of healthcare. Mm-hmm. How much do you work to influence industry, and what is how big a role does industry actually have in all this?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it it has been part of the decision to to create EDC to. Uh, from the onset involved the industry um or industry partners within within the structure or let's say within the organization. Mm-hmm. Um so they they do not have a role in the decision making, mm-hmm. but they have a, a very consistent role in in our discussions, um in identifying the, the, the challenges to um clinical research, therapeutic innovation uh, all what relates to the health technology assessment processes that, um, identify the added value of, uh, of new therapies, uh, all the challenges that we face in clinical trials. Um, I just mentioned biomarkers as being one, one example, but there are, there are plenty which are, uh, identified in the paper that we released, um, in 2014. Um, on, on all what relates to, Therapeutic innovation in, in our field, as I mentioned, it's, it's extremely complex to prove it from uh, a biological perspective, and uh, and also, I mean, just as, as an example, if you if you claim to have a new therapy for depression, how can you how can you assess that given the fact that you do not have the biological marker to to tell you okay this has improved whilst uh, this has decreased, um, and one of the elements you can have to identify the efficacy of a, of a therapy is just to ask the patient how he feels, mm. but how objective can that be? You know, if, mm. uh, if, even if you create scales, etc., cetera, et cetera. So a lot of work is now being done on, um, on what we, we call the patient reported outcomes measurements. So it's definitely have the patient at the center who simply tell us, um, mm. how he feels, what are the, what were the improvements? I mentioned earlier the concept of functionality. Um, so it's what is important to a patient? Um, very striking examples are, for instance, in the, uh, in the field of, um, movement disorders or Parkinson's in particular, that the, the way to measure, uh, improvements in the patient condition is the length of the pace when the patient walk. So just to make sure that he still has a pace of X, Y, and Z as compared and that is, it doesn't diminish it. Mm. If you ask the patient, he couldn't care less about it. Mm. What the patient wants is simply making sure that the, the tremor, uh, simply diminishes because in the case of an elderly patient, he, he wants to be able to, to take uh, grandchildren, you know, on, on their knees and to, um, and to play with them. Um, he or she wants to be able to, uh, potentially return back to work if it's, uh, uh a middle-aged person. But also, he wants to be able to to, to continue to function. Um, I mentioned going to work, uh, have a good life with uh, with relatives, but also having sex, mm. which is something you know, drug developers or three assessors, I mean, actually had no uh, no idea of.
0: And actually, this leads back to the import importance of treatment versus prevention. I mean, we also need to remember that treatment is important because it take it. it It takes care of the present. I mean, there are people that have issues that
1: need to be cured while we're working on prevention. No, absolutely. But here is what do you take into consideration when you develop that treatment, Mm. and what actually you would like to improve in the quality of life of Mm. of the people living with a with a brain condition. So this is this is where that paradigm shift is extremely important, and putting the the voice of the patient at the center is definitely something that we still have to work a little bit on. Mm.
2: So maybe we're we're getting close to, to an hour, so maybe I'll give you a chance, Fred, to summarize a little bit by coming with like a couple of key messages or priorities to a couple of different groups and one would be the patient or the the organizations representing the patients. The other would be the healthcare providers. Okay. And the third one would be the policymakers. So what, what would be your message to these three groups in terms of what, are the, what should be some of our top priorities uh, to improve brain health on a global level, basically?
1: Well, that's fantastic. And you're taking me by surprise. So really, <laughs> a very, very easy challenge. Um, well, first of all, to patients, I'd say, um, as, I just, uh, as I just did say uh, a few seconds ago, Patient voice is extremely important. So just carry on, continue. Um, I mean, works that are being done by all patient groups are just like fantastic by, you know, bringing groups together, making sure that uh, there is, we achieve a better coordination, that uh, we build the capacity of uh, patient organizations of being more influential, being heard, um, also I was fascinated fascinated to see that certain um, diseases managed to surface by the fact that we collaborated all together and that's what we are hoping with EBC to to bring as value also to to patient groups is just to make sure that we we have an umbrella where we create the echo which is sometimes necessary for uh, for single groups to um uh to to be heard now for for providers um uh and, and professionals in particular and uh and I would include here obviously also the, the researchers and, and scientists. Um I would say one message I would have is, is really to say that you do a fantastic fantastic job. Um that's that's really things that mesmerise me also by the by the commitment um of, of professionals um on a daily basis, which which is just fascinating. And, um, and definitely as EBC, we are there to support, uh, not that work on a daily basis, but that work, I would say in the context of all those elements that we mentioned and, uh, and, uh, and also doing our best in order to, to seek and implement the improvements uh, that would be necessary to make that life easier. And now policymakers, I think that they, if they heard the, or they listened to the podcast for, for the full hour. Uh, they just heard all the, the evidence to uh, to implement those improvements and to, and to develop those. Uh, some solutions are, are easy. Uh, there are some strategies which are, um, I mean, cost-saving, cost-efficient, um, and not necessarily costly in itself, um, but we can really leverage... Uh, very concrete um, uh, benefits to to population, to patients, to uh, to citizens, by simply um, changing uh, changing gears or or changing the angle by which we approach things, or implementing uh, some prevention strategies, as we as we discussed, um, and continue to invest into research um, from basic to to clinical, and making sure that we. Um, improve the condition of patients, improve uh, the, the, the working life of, uh, of providers and researchers by also seeking the best translation of research uh, of research outcomes, that we continue to produce knowledge, but that we also implement that knowledge in order to bring benefits to patients.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank I think we should not add any more work because you closed perfectly our session for today. So that's uh, that's all from uh, Kim, Alessia, Fred for today.
2: Thank you so much, Fred, and uh, thanks, Alessia. Thank Great you, pleasure. Kim. Thank you. Bye. Bye.